Hey, everybody. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, which is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we're talking with Josh Larson about the 1989 baseball touchstone, Field of Dreams. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher who now resides in the great state of Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest Josh Larson has asked us to go see Field of Dreams, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we'll ask what Field of Dreams has to do with life and ministry and theology in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Field of Dreams for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be September 17th, the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And in our third segment, The Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. Before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest for the week, Josh Larson. Josh is an editor at Think Christian, one of the co-hosts of the Film Spotting podcast, and author of the new book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. And I am thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Adam, for having me. And welcome back to you guys. I understand you were on a bit of a break and had, uh, I liked the episode on Saved that you came back with. Really appreciated that. And congrats, too, on the Christian Century Partnership. Yeah, thanks. We're, we're enjoying it and glad to have you here. Let's talk about this movie. I, I freely admit that of the two of us, Adam and myself, I'm the one who's got a soft spot for this movie. I'm the target market for sentimental baseball movies about fathers and sons and some vague sense of spirituality. Phil Alden Robinson's 1989 Field of Dreams is based on the 1982 W.P. Kinsella novel Shoeless Joe, it's a story of an Iowa farmer named Ray who begins to hear voices in the corn, famously telling him, if you build it, he will come. He interprets those voices to mean that if he plows out a baseball field in his backyard, shoeless Joe Jackson will come back from the dead, which more or less happens. So begins a story full of instructions and invitations that sound crazy, but somehow all come together in this dovetail of magical realism and nostalgia and baseball. Josh, in your new book, you wrote a little bit about this movie as a prayer of obedience. Ray hears the voice in the corn and he follows along. So can you tee us off and say a little bit more about what that means? Sure. First, though, maybe I should state I am not in the target market for this movie. <laughs> um, didn't enjoy baseball, Little League as a kid and got out of it as soon as I could. So I understand the appeal it has and maybe, you know, the fact that it works on me as well as it does. And there are certainly things about it that, you know, don't work for me, um, speaks to something larger that is going on beyond this baseball nostalgia that is really at the heart of it. I think there is more to this film than that, though. 
surely that's mostly what it's dealing in. Uh, and maybe one of those things, and the reason I did include it in the book, is this idea of how it considers the notion of obedience. And maybe that's a good place to start before I justify Field of Dreams as a prayer of obedience is, is what am I even talking about when I describe or think of obedience and Christian obedience? And I think there are two elements which are, for one thing, obedience is often thought of as restrictive, right? A set of rules. But the Christian understanding is that these are these are things that would give given to us by God in order that we might flourish. Okay, These are his guidelines for a full life. That's why we obey, is to live into that flourishing that God has meant for us. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is as an expression of gratefulness for what Christ has done for us, uh, we are responding with our obedience. This is what God has asked of us, and why would we not give it to him considering what he has given to us, okay? So those are the two kind of foundational ideas I was working from. And then when we pray in obedience, when we offer prayers of obedience, that is what the foundation of those prayers should be. So how does Field of Dreams exercise that? And in a lot of ways, it offers up sort of a counter because yes, Ray, Kevin Costner does follow this voice. He builds this baseball field against all logic. Um, to his family's financial ruin, almost. He follows the other commands, the two other commands that he gets. Uh, and he does see some fruit from that. But there's this crucial scene, and this is what I focused on in the book, where finally he looks for the real payoff, the personal payoff, right? Where he asks Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, played by Ray Liotta, essentially what's in it for me. He wants to follow the players into the heavenly realm of the cornfield where they disappear. And they say, no, you you can't come. And, and he kind of loses it and, and says, I've done everything I've been asked to do. And when do we get at that point as Christians too, right? We've obeyed. Where's my payoff? What is the slot machine going to spit out for me? And it's this moment of awareness that true obedience does not work like that. A Christian understanding of obedience does not function like that. So in Ray's actions, I, I almost saw this, this flip side of what we often feel when we are obeying, but is not what true obedience means. I think that's such an interesting idea, in part because that scene begins with Terrence Mann getting the invitation to go into the corn, right? Yeah. So it's almost as if Ray doesn't know that that's an option. Mm. And that when he does, this suddenly becomes like the, the thing that, that, that captures his imagination. He's like, oh, we can do that? Okay, then I want to do that. Sure. And, like, oh, th this is what it's about, maybe. Right, right. Oh, oh, oh. Like, the, the, the corn is the answer. And, um, and he didn't, it seems like he didn't, he was always intrigued by where they're coming from, but didn't know that that was an option. And as soon as it became an option, he realized, oh, that's the answer. And I feel like that's such a sort of common experience in our own lives, right? Which is, we don't know that something is an option, but we, when it becomes an option, it becomes a sort of like driving um, source of our desire and need. Mm. Like, oh, I want that. I really want that. I didn't know I wanted that, but now I really want that. And um, an obedience is a sort of larger call for us to not be so immediately moved by those initial temptations and sort of, I mean, I use the word lust is almost coming to mind, like, which is like, 
oh, that has become immediately attractive. I don't, I haven't had the time to think about why, but I know that I'm attracted to it. Yeah. So there, you know, gratif gratification comes into play here, right? And, and obedience is, is often having to delay or set aside that, that gratification. And I wonder how the very end of the film then plays into that, because you, he, he wrestles with wanting to go into the corn, as y'all have pointed out. He wants this thing that he didn't even realize was available to him. But then in that final scene between him and his dad, they, they, they have the spin on, you know, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. And then he kind of wrestles a bit and looks around and he sees his family sitting on the porch and sitting on the porch swing. And he sees the kind of beauty of the cornfield all lit up and beautiful and ethereal. And he realizes and he kind of says, well, maybe maybe this is heaven. And there's a there's a kind of... Um, it's almost the end of the Wizard of Oz, right? Like we, we, there's there was this no place like home after all kind of thing that pops up at the end of that. Uh, almost to say that he, he goes on this long journey and then finds himself kind of being instructed to be content about where he is. Mm, yeah, I, I like that, the, that it's emphasizing contentment and there's talk about him not being a farmer, not really knowing what he, this wasn't a dream he always had. Right. Right. But maybe it's the place he was meant to be. And I think the ending does emphasize that the, the heaven question is interesting because there are certainly those elements and those insert shots that you mentioned that would suggest it. There may be a pushing it a little bit further than earlier in the film, where as soon as the field is built, it's cast in this heavenly glow, right? right. Um, and when the players come out, it's always dusk, uh, perfect lighting. Um, and that's part of the magic that is irresistible even to me, someone who doesn't care much for baseball. Uh, so there's always been that thread. But I think in watching it again this time, what clued me into the heavenly aspect where we might describe as heaven or as the new creation is that interaction with his father, because what you're seeing there, and I do like that it's not explicitly stated, but you're seeing reconciliation mm -hmm. right between them. Um, they don't have to say it to each other. There's, I love the mystery of whether or not he even realizes he's his dad. I know he calls him dad at one point, but that's kind of just let to float by in the air. Um, and there's this wonderful feeling of whatever rift had gone on between them had been healed in this meeting here. And, and, you know, that's a picture, that's a very biblical picture of heaven, um, which, you know, we don't get cornfields turned into baseball <laughs> right. diamonds in Revelation, uh, but we get certainly a picture of reconciliation, and that's what we see here. Now, the complication with that is, okay, but then is that race? payoff like is this what he's earning for his obedience it seems like our narratives always have to at some point pay off obedience and maybe we'll get into this a little more bit more when we look at the lectionary because it's you know you could argue that there's even eventual payoff in some of the biblical texts sure and and the, but it's also i mean the i think we have to talk about the fact that his obedience is crazy i mean the the way it's mm. it's not just that the what he reads as obedience reads to the rest of the characters in the film as just being completely quixotic, off the deep end, crazy. In some ways, I, I find the character of his wife a little bit unbelievable. She is supportive to the point <laughs> of being not entirely real to me. On the other hand, it's so refreshing in the first half hour of that film to have someone who 
isn't completely at odds with him, but the 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 film works over time to make him as uh, just as weird as possible. The the things that he's doing are just out of nowhere, and I and I wonder if we need to wrestle with the ways in which Christian obedience doesn't always look like something that is kind of normative and regular. Yeah, I think, Matt, that's a really interesting point. At one point, Ray says of his father, he he never did anything crazy. He never stepped out. And there was a part of me that was bothered by this comment and deeply pained by it, in part because he has his wife, Ray has his wife, who's spurring him on, giving him permission, telling him it's okay. But the very beginning of the movie starts with Ray narrating this um, story about how his mother died when he was three years old and his father was a longshoreman who had to raise him alone. And I was like, damn, Ray, like you're living <laughs> on a knife edge here. Your mother can't like, can't like go off and chase something crazy. He's trying to take care of a kid. Cut you him know? some slack, right? Like, right. Cut him. Like, good Lord, just have a little grace for your dad here at this point. Because, um, and that, and the Amy Madigan character, I forget her name. Um, Annie. Is it Amy? A- no, Annie, 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 I believe. Annie. Yeah. So that she's there to give permission to Ray seems very important to me as, um, as Ray begins to reconcile with who his father was and why his father did the things that he did especially as Ray enters into adulthood and realizes the real consequence of being a little crazy, of changing this dream and realizing that um, it might bankrupt you. It might um, require you to fail. Yeah, the Annie character is has always been frustrating to me every time I've watched the film, because on the one hand, I think in its conception and its writing, I love this direction that he's not going to get the stereotypical pushback from his wife and she's going to become an antagonist. I I love this portrait of marriage that is, you know, as people who are of one mind, um, it may be a slightly off kilter mind that they share. um, But I like that choice that the filmmakers make the performance absolutely grates on me. (laughs) And that can be, you know, the performance things are often, it's it's very each people will react very differently. So it's not to say it's a bad performance. She's definitely committed, Amy Madigan, in the way she's going to portray this woman as you know, still having the the spit of the '60s, the the the, the uh, verve of the '60s on her, even though she's moved into a more conservative um, phase of life. Uh, but man, man it, it's just it's so over the top and it's so blatant that it kind of. Um, it takes me out of their relationship in a lot of ways. I don't know if, you know, I think Costner is really good here. He's just kind of goofy, you know, and he's not trying to be, he's obviously leading man and Robinson lights him that way. And, you know, the camera's in love with him at this phase of his career, but, but he's willing to be silly here, you know? And I, and I think that's really important. I don't think it's almost the flip side in Field of Dreams, I don't think the character writing for Ray is as solid as it is for Annie. Uh, you were mentioning these motivations, Adam, and, and how those don't always work for you. They don't work for me either. But Costner's performance sells it, you know, as this kind of goofball guy who's who's just willing to take a shot on something like this. Um, now, going back 
to to what you were saying about um, the neighbors and their reaction to all this. Uh, here's another area of the film that I think does align nicely, and, and you guys touched on it, with the notion of Christian obedience. Christian obedience is going to look idiotic, right? Especially in this day and age where individualism, it, it, making things the way you want them to be is the utmost goal. And I think in contemporary Western society, we struggle with how a lot of struggle comes with, okay, if that's what we're going to agree on, that my happiness matters, how do we live together? Um, how do we make room for other people's happiness? We all agree, you know, what really matters is just that I'm happy, but yeah, there's all these other people around. Um, and Christian obedience, you know, is going to be denying what the world defines as happiness in a lot of ways. And so we're going to look extra loony because not only are we not playing well with others in some instances, but we're also denying ourselves. And that goes against the very core of what it means to be a, a postmodern individualist. So the townspeople performances are one of the worst aspects of this film, <laughs> the way Robinson stages and blocks those scenes where like Ray says, well, one goofy thing and they cut away to a shot of like 45 townspeople staring at him. Right. Really clumsy. But, but the, the notion that's underlying that I think is a, is an interesting one. But yeah, there's a, there's a very interesting um, book that was written by Kenda Dean, who's going to be a guest on the show pretty soon. Um, they called almost Christian. And one of the, um, one of the arguments she makes in the book is that part of the reason our kids aren't being formed in the faith is because they've never seen their parents sacrifice on behalf of the gospel. Hmm. So they've never seen the ways in which the parents are looking a little crazy in the okay. world's eyes. Yeah, or making to, choices. Yeah to, that... yeah, to stand up for what they believe is right and true. That they that the parents are indistinguishable from anybody else in the culture is part of the reason that um, we're not seeing children formed in the um, in faith as much as we'd like. So if you want to your kid to sort of learn what it's like to be a Christian, well, then you have to actually stand out from time to time, right? You have mm -hmm. to like the world has to look at you and be like, that's a little crazy. Sure. Can you live out this right? Like. The, the question of obedience is, can also be reframed as a question of faithfulness, right? Like, what does it mean to be faithful to the gospel? And the radical call of the gospel on our lives sometimes causes us to do foolish things in the eyes of the world. And if we want to form, and I think this movie really is about parenthood, right? I mean, there's a lot of parental images, and it's not insignificant that Kevin Costner, that Ray, has a child, and that this child sure. is watching him do something a little bit crazy to chase his dream and how that's setting her up to succeed in a world um, that according to the movie is in a moment of real transition and is, you know, has a lot of money, but has no peace. Right. Mm -hmm. As Terrence Mann ends up saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I like this reading and I like this conversation a lot, but I've, feel like I need to point out the fact that the end of this movie only works because they're going to sell tickets to the field. <laughs> and and I, I say that as someone who loves this movie deeply, but I, I think that the, you know, the only reason that this plot gets quote unquote saved at the end is because they can commercialize it. 
Uh, and it's and and in one way, it's a beautiful image because we get this sense of all the people in the culture around who also need the thing that is available on this field, whether it's reconciliation or peace or some sense of just being in a liminal relationship with the world around you. Like, it's beautiful to imagine all the folks beating a path to that door. On the other hand, if we're really talking about the the work of faithfulness and obedience, the kind of quote-unquote cost of discipleship, right? it feels like the, the quote-unquote Christian way for this movie to end would be for them all to go bankrupt, um, which, which is, 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 is not the way that it would end in Hollywood, but it, it, it feels like we get saved by capitalism in a way that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And, it, and, and I guess in a way partially because as a, as a pastor of a church, I see the field as a kind of metaphor for church itself. Which, yes, in its best case, can be a spot for reconciliation and a spot for redemption and a spot for um, people to work out the demons that haunt them and come into some kind of transcendent space. But it, you know, it also works because of stewardship season and it works because we are generating revenue that we use to offset expense. I mean, it's, it's, it's and you all have an endowment that you're drawing down at 6% every year. Right. right? Ex like, exactly. <laughs> right. Eventually the bank is going to come for our property and we got to sell tickets for 20 bucks a pop. <laughs> yeah, that that's well. Okay. So here's why the chapter on movies as prayers of reconciliation was so difficult for me to write is because most movies don't end, <laughs> you know, the heavenly Hollywood ending is, is not the ending that we have hoped for. You're right. Uh, and field of dreams doesn't end that way either. I guess you could ask, does the movie even need this whole bank financial pressure to it? Or could this just be, and maybe they'd have to work more tension in the marriage than if they did this, but could this just be, uh, you know, one man's personal crisis and leave it at that. Now, of course, no, for, for a mainstream movie, you need to something to turn the screws a little tighter. Right. But I, for me, I think it could work without it. I will say uh, in defense of the movie's ending, I do like how they handle it and they stage it. I think it's a continuation of what uh, James Earl Jones speech uh, as Terrence Mann, you know, the speech he gives uh, about why people will come really has very little to do with what they're going to get for their money. It has to do more with the way you were describing the church, Matt. right? Um, the things they would find there. And so the final image, uh, and I remember when I revisited this for the book, I forgot how it ended. And I remember a great relief when I realized that they weren't going to go from Ray and his father playing catch to the daughter selling tickets, you know, like a jump forward right. three months and we'd see, you know, someone walking around, get your beer here. I think it's very graceful how they just, there isn't even a cut, right? I, I don't think there's a cut. No, I think it, just, it just goes just from them playing catch to, to the, the background scenery where we see the cars all approaching. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty elegant and maybe nuances the, yeah. the, the capitalist hinges that are certainly <laughs> there. Yeah, and part of that speech is that the, they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters, which just, yes. you know, I, I can't help but resonate with that as a, as a Christian and a preacher. It feels very much like an ecclesial moment. 
Well, we may have some more to say about some of that, but I think for now we should begin to move ourselves towards preaching. But before we do that, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. One article you might find interesting is by my co-host, the illustrious Adam Harrelson. He's got a new piece on clergy detectives, which examines the ubiquity of clergy detectives in the mystery genre and looks specifically at the Grantchester series as a model of a new type of clergy detective. Adam, did I do you justice? That's pretty good. All right. Yeah, that's it. All right. That's it. There's a lot of clergy detectives. There's like, I found a website online um, where the, the author, and I don't know who this person is, that there's no name attached to it, or maybe there was and I didn't realize. Uh, he catalogs 350 to 500 clergy detectives within literature. <laughs> like statistically, at some point, I feel like I'm missing out. Like I want to detect things. I know. Well, Matt, you need to figure out like how to put a PI uh, shingle up at the same time in front of your church. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Josh, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for year A, the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time, September 17th. It's a rich Sunday for preaching texts. We've got the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. We've got Joseph forgiving his brothers in Genesis 50. We've got this parable about forgiveness itself in Matthew 18. And then in Romans 14, Paul's instructions to the church conflicted about dietary practices, which is a more exciting text than it sounds like. So, Josh, Adam, as you think about Field of Dreams, what resonates for you in the preaching task for the week? I can see the moment of obedience between God and Moses. God says, stretch out your hand, and he does it. Is, is that a good place to start? Are there other places where Field of Dreams might help shine some light on our passages? Yeah, what's interesting for me about the Exodus passage is there is, you know, the obedience given by Moses there. But again, I'm almost more interested in the disobedience that we see or the grumbling, uh, the very uh, Ray Kinsella-ish grumbling that the Israelites offer to Moses' um, commands here, or Moses' leadership, I guess you could say. It's it's one of the many instances where, um, you know— they grumble about being brought out of Egypt, question. I love sort of the snarkiness of, mm-hmm. of the language here, at least, when where they're getting really sarcastic about, mm-hmm. uh, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die, you know? Um, That's some, like, yet, world-class shade. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and yet, and here's here's what I was hinting at when we were talking about payoff and, and, and Christian obedience, you know, they're finally, they finally get on board, though not really until they're offered something miraculous. Um, and then they see something miraculous and they're rescued um, for obeying. And, and I guess you could quibble, you know, well, what choice did they have at this point? Um, and maybe we can get into that. But there, this is one of those narratives where we still do see a certain payoff. Um, and, and you if your understanding of Christian obedience is that you do not obey to receive, um, you obey to give thanks. Uh, maybe this doesn't quite fit as well as we'd hope. Hmm. Well, I think, I think especially in light of the fact that it's not long after, 
Miriam sings her song of rejoicing and thanksgiving for the deliverance of God from Pharaoh after the Red Sea, I don't think you have to go far before they start grumbling again, right? Like True, yes. The, so to the extent that we talk that this is about obedience, I think it's a good example of the ways in which even something as miraculous as the Red Sea, which is which is truly one of the sort of tentpole miracles in Scripture, it gets referred to over and over again, right? Um, even it, for the life of this community, doesn't create obedience, right? Miracles just don't do a very good job of this, ultimately, <laughs> right? Like the the receiving the miracle is by the grace of God, as Scripture tells us and shows us. Um, but I don't often think that it's for our own faithfulness, that in some ways the faithfulness in spite of the miracle is a better indication of what obedience might look like. Mm. Yeah, that's that's probably true. And I think it's worth remembering that like the, the Israelites are commanded to tell this story over and over and over again. So when they come into the promised land, there's, you know, there are passages in Deuteronomy that talk about what, when you come into the land that the God has promised to you, you will tell this story over and over. You will remember that you were once wandering and now have come into the land of milk and honey. Of course, they wouldn't be commanded to tell that story if there were any thought that they might ever, uh, that they would remember it on their own. They're, right. not, they're, they're not going to remember it on their own, which is why they have to be commanded to tell it. So the obedience isn't just remembering a time when God was miraculous. It's, it's, it's remembering to tell the story over and over again because it's so fragile. And there's a form of obedience in telling it truthfully, in including the detail of your own yeah. grumbling and your own shame. Sure. Right. Yeah, sure. That, that, that the grumbling exists still, right? That it hasn't been excised or, or yeah. whitewashed from the story is right, a good right. indication that this is important yeah. for the community to remember. Yeah. Um, I, you know, as we talk about this, it, it strikes me that scripture has two particular reasons why you should obey the Sabbath, right? And the first is because God rested and God operates as this model for how we should live. But then somewhere in Deuteronomy, it switches and says, because I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt, right? Like, why do you why do you celebrate the Sabbath? Because I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Like, and in some ways, this is a reference to being in bondage, being enslaved, where you didn't have an opportunity to rest. But it's also a, just a reminder of like, I am the God that continues to deliver you. I'm the one who's in charge. Um, tell this story over and over again. Create moments where you tell this story over and over again, so that you might remember that. Um, that obedience is not obedience to some idea or some sort of like bygone rule. It's obedience to someone who's active, mm -hmm. to, to a God that's present and moving and still faithful, right? And this is, this is where memory and obedience, I think, begin to sort of, as, as you're talking, Matt, begin to coalesce into a single idea, which is um, in order to obey, we need to know that who we're obeying is trustworthy. And we understand God's trustworthiness by God's actions in the past to the ancestors. And, um, and to the extent that Field of Dreams is, is really about, you know, one generation trying to come to terms and reconciliation with the previous generation, with its own ancestors, um, I think that there's, there's some overlap there. 
I think it's an interesting tie-in with the, the Romans text, actually, which is about the different ways in which this new church community is obeying or not obeying uh, those, those Sabbath laws and also dietary laws. You've got the, the Jews in the Roman church who are obeying Jewish dietary laws and Jewish Sabbath practices, and you've got Gentile converts who aren't, and they're kind of sparring with one another. And Paul is telling them, look, you're going to disagree about this. The point is that whether you honor the Sabbath on one day or the other, that you honor it in, in honor of Jesus Christ. That is, like the, the, the thing that needs to unite you is the purpose for which you obey these laws, not necessarily the, the details of them, so that Christ becomes the kind of through line there. And, and I, I think there's a there's a kind of an oddball connection there with the film, which is the way in which Terrence Mann's speech talks about baseball as the through line in American culture and history. That it's the one constant through all the years, as he says, but baseball has marked the time. Uh, and I, th- there's some things to be uncomfortable about in this speech. I mean, it's got a, <laughs> it's, it's got a reverence for America's past that I think is... A little uncomfortable for me. America's past is not uniformly good. And baseball itself wasn't always uniformly good. It was the subject of segregation. And this movie elides the kind of racial history of baseball pretty heavily. But I think if we wanted to read it sympathetically, we could say that for all of the sins of the nation, baseball has been a kind of constant, a thing that we can agree on in principle, even when we can't agree on the particulars and the details of it, which is kind of, I think, what Paul wants here with Romans 14. It's the Christians who don't agree on a damn thing, but they don't even, they don't even agree on how to worship Jesus, but still in life and death, they, they belong to him. Especially as baseball is both an urbane and a rural thing in this movie, right? Like he, he ends up going to New York. He grows up in New York, Ray does, but now he's living in Iowa. You know, Terrence Mann wants to go to Ebbets Field which is in Chicago, right? Like, but now they're in Iowa and that both the urbane and the rural can, um, can coalesce around this idea of this, this game. Adam, I know you're a basketball guy. Ebbets Field is in Brooklyn. And I, I, just, I, I just want to correct that because that's a, we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna get letters. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm sitting here we'll outside of Chicago like thinking, <laughs> Ebbets Field. No, yeah. I okay. I said it with such confidence. You, just, you said it with a lot of confidence. <laughs> and when we talk about like love and basketball, then I'm sure I'll mess something up just as dramatically. Yeah, so I'm thinking about that speech. And that's, for me, where the baseball mythology, I run up against the wall. It's just right. for, for the reasons you mentioned, Matt, the, the, um, the ignorance it willfully. Um, and it's almost as if, you know, by casting James Earl Jones, the movie feels like it's taken care of that work, right? right? Um, which is something that's certainly looked bad in 19, what is this, 89, right? Right. Um, and uh, has only looked worse. So that speech doesn't work on a number of levels, uh, but I think that's what the movie wants it to do. It wants it to work in the way you described, Matt, and then I, it can it can provide this overarching motivation. And, and there's maybe the connection there with, with what you're talking about with, with the church is asking this question of what is the motivation for your obedience? Because that is, um, that is what is important besides the fact that you're obeying the letter of the law, which, which is why I started out at the very beginning saying, um, you know, obedience is, is not just 
following marching, specific marching orders, hitting certain beats. There's the reason for doing that. Um, now, this gets back, I think, a little bit to why it doesn't also sell in the movie is because Ray's motivation is always kind of fuzzy. Yeah. You know, it, even when he and Annie talk about it, it's it's well, why why would you do this? Because you heard the voice, and 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 they the movie even gives them a way out. That scene on the stairs, uh, I think, before he goes to to Terrence Mann, a, a really awkward moment where. Suddenly, she says, after the they've dream. been not really arguing, but, but but kind of talking about how let's this has got to come to an end. Suddenly, she says, well, you know, I had this dream that you were sitting in the right. stands with Terrence Mann. And he's like, well, I had the same dream. And they look at each other, and it's like, you almost expect them to look into the camera and be like, see? So he really should do this, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's just the, the motivation for Ray is never um, zeroed in on a satisfying way in this movie. Uh, that I think would would really support this reading of it as as a, a prayer of obedience. Adam, what else do you have? Do you want to talk about some of the other lectionary texts? Yeah, well, I think um, I think the Genesis passage, especially where Joseph tells his brothers that that which you meant for evil, God intended for good, and to their demands or or requests for forgiveness he says well you know am i god am i the one who forgives god forgives and god has been working for good in the midst of this um and so as i as i think about that passage and i watch this movie i'm beginning to to have a more complicated vision of forgiveness um because at the at the heart of this ray needs to forgive his father i i think it's part of the moment of reconciliation which is he doesn't seem to understand his father very well um, and sees his father as a, as a taskmaster, taskmaster of some sort who wanted him to just play baseball. I guess that's the backstory. Um, and Ray, in, as a rebellious 60s era youth, decided that he didn't want to do that and he was going to move to Berkeley from New York. And so the catch is this moment of redemption because he gets to see his father one last time, and finally gets to have this moment of, of peace where he can forgive his father. But also, I think the movie is trying to tell us is that he can like forgive himself because he's carrying around a certain amount of pain for the alienation that he had a part in. And so there are moments where this movie veers a little too close to Cats in the Cradle territory for me. Sure. You know, in The Silver Spoon, um, where... Uh, but that pain that comes from a broken relationship where reconciliation seems totally impossible because one or more parties is dead, um, that's very real. Um, and I think it's some of Costner's best acting in the movie, actually. And it's real in the Joseph passage. Jacob was a terrible father, and, uh, and he had his own terrible sibling troubles, and he had these deep-rooted insecurities. Uh, just... As a side note, I was reading the Jacob and Esau reconciliation recently. And at the end of the Jacob and Esau reconciliation, Esau says, well, I'm going to go on ahead. You come and meet me. But Esau's now living on the east side of the Jordan, which is not the promised land. So, so Jacob says, yes, I'm coming. I'm right behind you. I'll be there in a couple of days. And then the text said, and Esau went back home and Jacob took a left turn. And then we never hear from Esau again. And it's it's a tragic moment in scripture. Yeah, that it just kind of like moves over that they have this reconciliation, but Jacob never goes and hangs out with his brother any longer, and he takes a left turn to 
inhabit the land of promise. But all of these deep-rooted insecurities of Jacob seem to have been passed down to his kids. Um, and then he dies. And that's how the Genesis passage begins. And in his dying wish, he's trying to ask everyone to be reconciled to each other. And to his brothers, this seems absolutely crazy. Like, they tried to kill Joseph. They sold him into slavery. They sought his destruction. But then this moment of reconciliation comes, um, and it's totally liberating, and it feels like a miracle, and it feels so foreign to the world in which we live. It, it feels ghostly. It feels like some sort of divine intervention needed to be there in order for it to happen. And so on a more meta level, I think this movie is trying to make me think that each generation is actually tasked with reconciling with each other, with itself, with its ancestors. And so I'm wondering how Field of Dreams helps us sort of understand how these sons can reconcile. And in their reconciliation, they're also reconciling with their father. Um, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I, I can't help but read Genesis and see the ways in which the generations are passing down their own problems to each other, and that there needs to be some moment of divine intervention, of forgiveness, to sow the seeds of reconciliation in the lives of this family. Well, there is a two-way exchange going on in the reconciliation scene in Field of Dreams as well, because I think for Ray, at, at that point in the movie, it's become less about him forgiving his father for his, you know, perceived inadequacies than it is for getting forgiveness for the way they left. Cause he makes the comment of, about how he takes the shot at shoeless Joe Jackson. Right. And that's the mm -hmm. last thing he said to his yeah. father or something like right. that. So he has some guilt that, that he's uh, looking to expunge as well, but, you know, mentioning shoeless Joe Jackson again, and, and just thinking about forgiveness, there's a really interesting element to this movie that I haven't really thought all the way through yet, but um, all of these players who come are sinners, yeah, right. right? Um, th this is the, the, the Black Sox team. So accused of cheating. And, and, um, so there are reasons why those are the players chosen to receive the gift of this place and a second chance. Um, and, you know, maybe not historical redemption in the record books, but certainly a spiritual sort of redemption. And so I, I think it's, it's particularly important that uh, it's these sinful men who are invited here. Except for Ty Cobb, right? No one could stand him. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know. I mean, some people are beyond the, the right. redemption. Some people are beyond the pale. Look, Josh, I mean, in the spirit of film spotting, are there, what are, what are some of the, what are the, some of the sports movies that yeah, it's, should it's be in the really canon, do you not, think? It's not a favorite genre of mine. It, no? it's, it's a little bit similar to biopics is, for me, is that the formula is so rigid yeah. that you're never going to be surprised. So I think the ones that people talk about, like Tin Cup, you know, Costner again, um, are the ones that take little left turns uh, or even what's the other baseball one the earlier for the one. love of the game he's pretty good in that actually i think um i think Field I mean, of bull, Dreams bull is durham, like a I little mean, bit of bull durham yeah that's what bull durham yeah yeah um so yeah but i'm a i am a basketball guy too <laughs> so um so for me a great sports movie is he got game i'm also a huge spike lee fan so yeah. i don't know if that really counts as a sports movie but uh, another father-son movie though you know it is oh totally totally right? it's yeah um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's just not a genre that uh, it seems to be free to surprise me very often. Right. I don't. I think so. I mean, I was trying to figure out sort of which which sports book work well in the movies. Mm-hmm. And I think baseball works really well. I think that there are a number of really good baseball movies that show up. Um, Bull Durham being one of them. I, I have a soft spot for the natural. I like the natural a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Like, more, uh, more like drenched in nostalgia, right? Yeah, uh, I, very I much. Unabashedly so. Um, and uh, But then basketball movies, which I like a lot. Um, and then boxing. Boxing gets a lot of good, yeah. good films. Boxing's probably the most cinematic. Basketball is tough to there's just there's too much going on, you know. Um, I actually like any given Sunday, the Oliver Stone football. Yeah, movie. I like I like that quite a bit. Do you? Yeah. yeah, he's yeah. got a he's he does such he's so interested in the cinematography of that. I mean, the characters I like sure. can take or leave, but the camera is so interesting at moments in there. Yeah, I, I, that's true. I I just think he he sort of latches on to the gladiator thing of football players and it just gets so tiring after a while like i i, I actually expect more from oliver stone mm. like this is too easy for and that's why i think boxing is cinematic but i think i loved creed i thought that was a great movie i, I still have not seen creed so uh, i think ryan Coogler was doing something really interesting with that movie but like raging bull is really hard to yeah, quibble with as a as sure. a movie. I just think with boxers, you can get you get more interesting human beings. Yeah, right? totally. And when you can find the sort of interesting human being, then it can make the make the movie a little bit. Well, you can you can hang the movie on it easier. That's why Bull Durham, I think, works is because you have three characters that each are sort of idiosyncratic as characters sure. in the movie itself. Can we can yeah, we I almost can we get away with the wrestler, I, the Arnofsky? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm another thing I have to do today is nail down my top five Aronofsky scenes. So, oh, um, really? Yeah. The wrestler, I almost don't think of as a sports movie and I don't, I don't think of that. boxing movies as sports movies. Yeah. Now that you no. say that. Yeah. You know? I mean, rock Rocky, I do, but I, I, you know, you can have Rocky. That's fine. But it's a little bit of a catch 22. I mean, if you define sports movies as being movies that fill with that, that obey all of those genre constraints, then of course they're going to be disappointing because they've right. obeyed all the constraints. So yeah, then by definition, yeah. the ones that are good are the ones that you don't even count in the first place. I think that would be a good, a good <laughs> way to begin making a top five list. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. I don't know if we figured this all out, but I do know that it's time for us to move on. I've got to go pick up my kid and force him to play catch with me. Unfortunately, that means saying goodbye to Josh. Thank you again, Josh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, again, folks, Josh Larson is editor at Think Christian co-host of the Film Spotting Podcast, and his new book is called Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longing. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, guys. This was fun. All right, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? As we were texting... Yesterday, Matt, you told me that you visited, you've actually visited the Field of Dreams, right? Yeah, I have been there in Dyersville, Iowa. It's a, I went there in 2002. Since then, it has gotten more commercial stuff around it. They've actually now had like a, there's a deal in place to develop a whole kind of baseball complex there. But when I was there, there was a field in the grass and a farmhouse next to it. Uh, 
and and you could some just corn as an corn. Yeah, I mean, I was there in August, so in August in Iowa, there's corn. Uh, and you showed up and you played a game with whoever was there. And so I played some baseball with like some random families that were traveling through. And I'm not gonna lie, it was awesome and magical. And I will fight anyone. I love I love that. I know I'm actually I'm I'm going to refrain from my usual cynicism and embrace that wholeheartedly because I I love the local idiosyncratic stuff like that. And um and that conversation that we were having last night via text was reminding me of what I think is one of the best sort of travel log chapters um of in the last 100 years, which is uh, a a little book called Travels and Hyper Reality by Umberto Eco. Yeah, I know it. Um, it's it's awesome, first of all. And your our, your discussion of the field of dreams um, reminded me of this portion where he talks about Hearst Castle and the Madonna Inn, which are both on the California coast, and both of which I've visited many, many times. Um, and these, according to Echo, are places of hyper reality. Um, and if you haven't been to Hearst Castle, it's um, it's a big, massive estate on the hills above, um, uh, like the Central California coast. And it was um, the the home of William Randolph Hearst, but it is huge and um, has no real architectural vision except I'm rich and I can buy anything I want. And so he would buy like the doors from monasteries in Italy and then put them on his house. And, and, um, and this was the most entrancing place to me as a kid. And I would go there regularly. I've seen all of the tours. I actually even went on the, um, the night tour where people dress up in period pieces, um, and period dress. Uh, but even better than Hearst Castle is the Madonna Inn. And the Madonna Inn is like a travel lodge with about 200 some odd rooms, each with their own theme. Like one is the like caveman theme and one is like the Alpine Inn room. And it is the most surreal place in California. And um, I had a chance to, um, when driving from San Francisco down to Southern California, to stay there with um, with my wife when we were just newly married. And it was the funniest, most crazy place ever. And I want to read you Echo's description of the Madonna Inn because it's incredible and it's better than I could do. He says, let's say that Albert Speer, while leafing through a book on Gaudi, swallowed an overgenerous dose of LSD and began to build a nuptial catacomb for Liza Minnelli. For Liza Minnelli. But that doesn't give you an idea. Let's say Archimbald builds the Sagrada Familia for Dolly Parton, or Carmen Miranda designs a Tiffany locale for the Jolly Hotel chain. Or D'Annunzio's Viturale, imagined by Bob Cratchit, Calvino's Invisible Cities, described by Judith Krantz and executed by Leonore Fini for the plush doll industry, <laughs> Chopin's Sonata in B-flat minor, sung by Perry Como in an arrangement by Liberace and accompanied by the Marine Band. Uh, it's an incredible description of a place, and it totally makes sense. Why I love it is that these are these sites that attract our call, our cars and our attention, and they sort of pull us like moths to the flame. They're these local phenomenon that can gather tourists from out of town. Um, and this is sort of Echo's point. The Field of Dreams is a Midwestern phenomenon. It works in Iowa. It needs corn in the outfield. Hearst Castle 
and the Winchester Mansion, if you've ever been there, and the Madonna Inn in California are very Californian in their own way. So if you want to know about California, you actually can go to Hearst Castle and it'll give you a very good description. Um, these strange attractions, I fear, are becoming rarer in our world. And it makes me sad because I love that there are these idiosyncratic expressions of the local. Um, and I think ministry can learn from these local attractions. Uh, places that are treasured by the locals reflect a story about the place in which they reside, tell a story about the community. They are spaces that create curiosity and they create um, places where you can question and sort of stand in awe of the strange vision. Um, they stand apart and stand out even as they are totally part of uh, the world in which they come from. Um, I wonder what this might mean for our churches. Can we create places that can do something similar to a place like the Field of Dreams, which you, I think earlier in the episode, rightly noted, is a lot like a church, or the Madonna Inn, or Hearst Castle, so that we're asking people to not just sort of come and leave, but to remain in awe and wonder. That's what I got. How about you? I like it. I'm sitting here trying to figure out what... Austin's idiosyncratic locality is, which in some ways Austin is an entire idiosyncratic locality. It, it, it might be the idiosyncratic locality of Texas. But I, but I suspect that if you went down to the Congress Street Bridge on, on an evening during the summer and, and rode one of the boats out into the lake to watch all the bats emerge from underneath the bridge, that that would yes. be, that like, that like bat watching is probably Austin's local idiosyncrasy. Um, which I would take over the crap of Southern California in a day of the week, but that's just me. Uh, <laughs> you got to stay at the Madonna Inn. It is awesome. All right, Adam, I, I hate to do this to our esteemed audience, but I want to talk about Game of Thrones for a minute. Um, What's that? Uh, it's a, 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 <laughs> a little HBO documentary um, that you may have seen or heard of. Uh, art house pick. Yeah, a little okay. bit of an art house thing. I wanted to go with the deep cut. Uh, so Game of Thrones has wrapped up its uh, seventh and penultimate season. There's been a lot of joy and criticism around this most this most recent season because it's paid off a lot of long-awaited moments and a lot of uh, a, a lot of catharsis that has not necessarily been the tool of the trade of a show that has historically been pretty slow moving. Um, there's also a lot of characters that seemingly teleport from place to place just in the service of getting the action moving to a speed that it hasn't moved at previously. So we've lost a bit of realism, but in its place is a, is a kind of an alacrity that just creates narrative explosion at every turn. Uh, so there's a lot of anxiety about this, even as people kind of enjoy it. Like, we love seeing the dragon fights, even though as we understand that, like, it's not quite as consistent with some of their narrative trajectory as we might have seen before. Uh, and as I think there's anxiety about what has happened to the show after it moved out from underneath the shadow of the novels that George R.R. R. Martin had already written. So we feel his absence on screen, but then it's also easier to write off plot developments that we don't like when we know that Martin himself didn't actually author them on the page of the, in the pages of the novels. So I, fe I feel like we're more willing to tolerate changes in dynamics and changes in characters from kind of quote-unquote the real authors than from the showrunners which are at this point kind of writing fan fiction they're kind of fan creators 
Yeah, that's right. And and the season involves a particularly underthought plot device wherein some characters go on a stupid fetch quest to north of the wall. And I wonder how much better it would have been received if Martin had signed off on it in the first place. Right. Or the relationship between two important sisters, for right. instance. Right. Sure, sure. So I, I'm thinking about this scripturally a little bit because the Bible has its own kind of fan fiction. Uh, which is we we call it pseudepigraphy, which are places in scripture that are that are written under the name of other authors. So you get sections of First Corinthians that are probably not written by Paul, but stitched in after the fact, someone writing in his name, or the letter to the Ephesians, which uses the phrase "I Paul," but is almost certainly not written by Paul, or even most of the Johannine letters, which are written in the style of a Johannine community, but probably not by the apostle. A few weeks ago, I was staying in an Airbnb, and the host kind of figured out that I was clergy, uh, and he was very excited. He comes from a much more fundamentalist end of the Christian spectrum and wanted to engage me about, about the Apostle Paul. And brought out this bit in First Corinthians where Paul talks about how women should keep silent in worship. And in the deepest core of my kind of scriptural theology and faith tradition is this thought that that is not representative of the broad swath of Paul's theology and that that section is probably not written by Paul. And I said more or less as much to the guy and said, well, you know, <laughs> and, and, and this was so brave. This, this, this is was the bravest thing I've seen. You know, you know, some like some superheroes don't wear capes. <laughs> so I said, you know, uh, uh, according to most scholarly consensus, and I said it as gently as I could, and and I knew that this was never going to go anywhere, but here I was. And and I said, well, according to most scholarly consensus, that section of 1 Corinthians probably isn't written by Paul himself. And the guy said to me, well, if he didn't write it, he probably should have, right? <laughs> he got you there. <laughs> he just a really good response. And so I'm, and I've been thinking about this with Game of Thrones, right? Like if George didn't, if George R. R. Martin didn't write about the ice zombie dragon, like he probably should have, which I feel like is the response from a number of fan communities. Like, and I feel like it just helps me realize that authorship is a little more complicated than we than we give it credit for. That we we give it credit for like our ability to suss out different kinds of signatures or different kinds of meanings, but really we also get wedded to content that we like. And we're willing to fuss a lot with the details uh, once once we're in. So that's that's what's been on my mind a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a really important question too because I think we're used to assigning trustworthiness to authors rather than ideas, right? Yeah, but I don't think. That, I guess my point is I don't think we actually act that out. You don't think so? You think we think. Because it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Because if he hadn't, if he didn't write it, he should have, you know. And and I think we're willing to say, well, we love the spectacle of ice dragons um, blowing against the wall, and so we're willing to um, forgive a lot of weird plot inconsistency, right. and we're willing to uh, kind of play it a little fast and loose with authorship in the seventh season of Game of Thrones because we love these particular payoffs. Even though I think in our... Ah, in, in I our, see. yeah. I think, even though I think in the middle of the night we would confess, if knife to the throat, that the season doesn't really make any sense. But like... Oh, correct. Uh, but we're willing to 
to play real fast and loose with as long as we get the kind of payoffs that we're in it for, whether that be, in my weird analogy, your theology of women in ministry or ice zombie <laughs> dragons. <laughs> I, well, I don't think it's weird at all. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. All right. So. That about gets us to the end. Oh, one more thanks to Josh Larson for hanging out, out with us today. Adam, next episode, we're going to be talking with Elizabeth Diaz, religion writer for Time Magazine. She's taking out some time from the craziness of political journalism these days to chat with us. And by the magic of nonlinear editing, she's here to give us our homework. Hi, Matt and Adam. It's Elizabeth Diaz. I'm a correspondent for Time Magazine, writing about religion and politics. And I'd like us to watch Spotlight so we can talk about what it means to tell the truth and the role of institutions like the church, the media, and even the public in storytelling. Adam, I saw Spotlight once in the theaters and I haven't seen it since. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, actually. I mean, there was a portion and I may be the only one in Boston who didn't see it when when it was coming out. Um, So I'm I'm excited to see it. And I think it'll be great, great, great topic. Yeah, this is a it's a great process movie, just like how journalists do their work. But of course, the church also plays a pretty substantial role in this for for better and then mostly for worse. So it'll be interesting for us to talk about what the process is of, of the church as an institution that wants to preserve truth, but also as an institution that can be vulnerable and corrupted in all kinds of difficult ways. I'm looking forward right. to and it. I, and I'll ride for Mark Ruffalo any day of the week. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, folks. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps. And special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, the sound wizard who was helping us out a lot. Our new music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Family Boots. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.